With this 69th lesson on the book of Genesis, we come to the beginning of a very significant series of events, and those events are the records of the births of Jacob's 12 sons, and you see their names on the flip side of your homework sheet. The critical significance of these 12 sons is that they were the fathers or the progenitors of the 12 tribes of Israel. An important difference now occurs at this point in the account of God's continuation of the Abrahamic covenant. When God first gave the covenant to Abraham, remember he made it very clear that it would be passed on to only one son. And that son came to be Isaac. And then to Isaac, it was also later divinely revealed that the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant were to be passed on to only one son. And who did that son turn out to be? Jacob. However, something unique happened with Jacob's sons. All of them, all 12 of them, shared in the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. Although it remained true that only one of his sons would continue, you know, the messianic line, the specific line of the promised seed of the woman, the coming Savior, yet all of his sons were to be considered the children of Israel, Jacob having his name changed, of course, to Israel. None of those sons would be excluded from being a part of God's chosen people. Whereas, remember, Ishmael had been cast out. He had been excluded, and Esau was excluded. None of Jacob's sons would be excluded from being a part of God's chosen people. All 12 of his sons would constitute the nation which was promised to Abraham. All 12, in other words, would inherit the land of Israel, and they would all inherit the special blessing of God, which stated that he would bless them who blessed, bless them who blessed them, you know, Israel, and curse those who cursed them. All of the sons of Jacob collectively were to serve as God's witnesses to the world, and therefore they were, to, they would all collectively serve to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Now, of course, in specific, it would be through the one selected son, and we know that that son is Judah. In specific, it would be through Judah that Jesus Christ would be born, and it was because of him that all the families and nations of the earth would be blessed. But in general, he did come to the earth through the nation of Israel. However, um, while the primary importance, the primary significance of this lesson that we're going to be looking at this morning and several additional lessons to follow, the primary importance or significance will be to relay the accounts of the births of Jacob's 12 sons. We're going to find that there are additional messages in the births of um, these sons as well. For one thing, we are going to learn more about Jacob the man whose life we are studying. We're definitely going to learn more about him. We're going to learn how he was as a husband. We're going to learn how he was as a father. And we're going to learn how he did in his spiritual walk with the Lord. Also, for the very first time, we're going to get to learn a little bit more about his two wives, Leah and Rachel. We'll get a good look at them this morning. And we're going to discover some revealing insights about their relationships with their husband, 
and their relationships with each other as well as their relationships with the Lord and with their handmaids. Remember those two women, their handmaids. We're going to see that Jacob's decision to comply with Laban's scheme and take both sisters to wife, thus becoming a bigamist, that that decision brought many burdens into his family. All that we will learn about the situation in Jacob's family is only going to help further demonstrate the wisdom of God when he established the institution of marriage as being monogamous. In other words, one man for one woman or one woman for one man. All of man's clever attempts to rewrite God's word on this issue of monogamy and all of man's, you know, clever attempts to either justify polygamy or divorce will not ever be able to stop the heartaches and the headaches and the complications and the consequences which come from disobeying God's way of doing things. And Jacob's family is certainly going to be an example of this truth. Now, in this lesson is entitled Bigamy Burdens. And uh, we're going to look at three main sections, which were very easy for me because I noticed that um, three times we read the words when somebody or other saw. And those three times occur in verse 31 of chapter 29, then verse 1 of chapter 30, and again verse 9 of chapter 30. So we're going to be looking at when the Lord saw, then we'll look at when Rachel saw, and finally we'll look at when Leah saw, and then we'll talk about the things that they saw, as you can see underneath there. I'm not going to go through that whole outline with you. But let's begin by looking at when the Lord saw, and under this section, we're going to see that he saw two things. He saw a woman's burden, and then he saw a way of blessing that woman. So let's begin by looking at the, just the very first few words of verse 31, a woman's burden. It says in uh, chapter 29, verse 31, the first part, it says, And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated. That's all I want to read right now. As we discussed in our, I'll be putting that back up, so don't worry about it. As we discussed in our previous lesson, Laban had given very little thought or concern to the feelings of his daughters when he essentially used them as trading commodities to get himself some good free labor. His oldest daughter, Leah, probably suffered the worst of the three who were put together in a what we could call a um, marriage triangle. She not only suffered from the emotions of feeling used, and sold by her own father, but she also suffered the feeling of feeling unloved by her husband. We're told in verse 30, remember what we closed up last week, we were told that Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. No husband can love two women, can love two wives equally. Now, it's possible to love your children equally, but you cannot love a spa, uh, two spi spices, <laughs> two spouses equally. I guess we don't need that word, do we? <laughs> but no woman can love two husbands equally, and no wife, I mean, no husband can love two wives equally. I mean, it just never works out, and that's why God was so wise in making marriage monogamous. Um, now, although Jacob did fulfill his marital 
obligations to Leah, probably because he soon saw that she was going to be the productive wife, yet she knew that his heart was not in his lovemaking. His heart belonged to who? To Rachel, the younger daughter. He was always kind to Leah, but it was a kindness which was probably born more from pity than passion. And she keenly felt his favoritism and his partiality toward the younger sister, her younger sister. So the first of the bigamy burdens about which we read in the situation with Jacob and his two wives is the longing of Leah for love. She felt not only unloved by her father, and she probably felt not very loved at all by her sister, as we'll see, but she was not properly loved by her husband either. But the good news for Leah was that the Lord saw her situation, and the even better news for Leah is that the Lord loved her. In fact, he loved her enough to use her situation to draw her closer to himself through her trial, through her burden. He loved her enough to even bless her. So we're going to turn now to see the Lord's way of blessing Leah. And for that, I'm going to read verses 31b to 35, the end of the chapter. It says, and when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he, here's his way of blessing, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bare a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, surely the Lord hath looked upon my affliction. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. And she conceived again and bare a son and said, Because the Lord hath heard that I was hated, he hath therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And she conceived again and bare a son and said, Now this time will my husband be joined unto me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore was his name called Levi. And she conceived again and bare a son, and she said, Now will I praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name, what? Judah, and left bearing. The Lord saw Leah's loneliness because, of course, he is omniscient. He's all-seeing. There's nothing which is hidden from him, no problem that you have in your life that he does not see. So because he is also caring, loving, and because he's also all-powerful, omnipotent, he intervened in the triangular marital situation by helping to to balance out the um, consequences of the bigamy burden for Leah. He opened her womb while he kept Rachel's womb closed. Rachel remained barren. In his providence, God, you see, maintains what we could call a proportional balance. In his high and mighty wisdom, he compensates burdens with blessings so that the burdens do not overwhelm us. And he also compensates blessings with what? With burdens so that we don't uh, get too proud, too puffed up. Isn't this what happened with the Apostle Paul? I mean, he was so privileged. All the things he he experienced and um, all the knowledge the Lord gave him. He could have gotten puffed up with pride very easily. So what did the Lord give him to compensate? A thorn in the flesh, exactly. Now, Rachel may have been beautiful, 
And she may have been the wife who was deeply loved by Jacob, but she also had a burden to bear. Her burden was her barrenness. She had a barrenness burden. And this became more of a burden for her due to the fact that her sister was very prolific. She was having one child after another. She had no problem in in conceiving. And, of course, all of this was whose doing? The Lord God's doing. This was God's doing. Now, it's interesting that the mention of the Lord in verse 31 is the very first time that we have heard of the Lord since Jacob, uh, since his encounter with the Lord at Bethel back in uh, chapter 28, you know, when he had the dream, the dream of the latter Lord. That's a, this is now the first time we've heard of the Lord. The lack, the lack of any mention of the Lord God since Jacob's arrival in Haran is really a serious condemnation of who? Of Jacob. Exactly. Where is any mention at all of an altar that Jacob built while he was in Haran? There is no mention of an altar. Where is any mention of Jacob praying about which wife the Lord wanted him to have? There is no mention of Jacob praying about that. Where is mention of Jacob beseeching God's advice about Laban's wedding night trickery and what to do with Laban's offer to take a second wife, to take Rachel? Again, there is, there is none. There is no record of Jacob doing that. Yet, you see, although Jacob may not have been thinking very much about the Lord, the Lord had not forgotten Jacob. Remember, the Lord had taken a vow. He had made a vow with Jacob, and he doesn't forget his promises. He had promised to multiply Jacob's seed, his descendants, and he would fulfill that promise regardless of Jacob's failures. So the Lord saw Leah's longing for love and he planned to use that longing to draw her to himself he would also compensate the isolation of Leah with a fruitful womb you know she felt neglected she felt isolated so what was he going to do he's going to give her right many children as we're going to see later on in um, Genesis chapter 30 the Lord also also saw Rachel's craving for children, and he was going to use her infertility to also draw her to himself. In the divine compensation of things, we, we, um, we need to remember, and we're going to learn more about envy as we go through this chapter, but we need to remember that there is no cause for envy. You know, you can look around and you can say, well, I'm so jealous. She, she's got this and she's got that and I don't have it. <laughs> and so it's often a problem, even in, among Christians, to be envious of others. But there is no cause for that. We're going to talk more about that. But think about the beauty of Rachel. Rachel was, you know, a head turner. Men would always look at Rachel. She just had something about her that was beautiful whether it was her eyes or her figure or all the whole thing put together. But the beauty of Rachel, you'll love this picture. <laughs> the beauty of Rachel did not guarantee happiness. 
You know, beauty is definitely not a guarantee of happiness. You know, you could just look at Hollywood to find out how true that is. One of the most beautiful women that there ever has been was Elizabeth Taylor, probably. And how many husbands has she had? And is she a happy person? No, not by any means. And you can go on and on with whatever movie star you want to talk about. There is not, it's not a guarantee. Um, that beauty, that beauty brings happiness, as the fashion magazines and, you know, our culture would like to tell us otherwise. Especially this is a problem with young girls, with the Barbie dolls thing and all that. But it's definitely not a guarantee of um, happiness. Often beauty carries with it some very heavy burdens which ordinary women, like this woman up here, get spared from encountering. Right? You know that's true. It's very interesting to see that while, um, and this is interesting, that while Rachel is said to have been envious, we're going to see that when we get down to chapter 30, verse 1, Rachel is said to be envious of her sister uh, Leah because of Leah's um, fertility. <laughs> Yet never once is there any mention that Leah was jealous of Rachel's beauty. Interesting, isn't it? Now, because we know that, and this is interesting too, because we know that Joseph, all right, not Jacob, but Joseph, the 11th son of Jacob, because we know that he was born at the end of Jacob's 14 years of laboring for Laban, and we read about that in chapter 30, verse 25, and that Jacob, of course, did not have any children before he was married to Leah and Rachel. And that was when? It was at the beginning of his second set of seven years work, working for Laban. Therefore, because we know those two facts, we know that all his first 11 sons up to Joseph were born within a seven-year period. Leah herself gave birth to six sons and one daughter in that period of time. And this means that she probably got married, uh, married probably got pregnant with uh, Reuben during her marital week with Jacob because, I mean, she started producing right away. She had to. She had seven children within seven years. And unless some of those children were twins, which could have been, um, for example, Zebulun and Dinah might have been twins. We don't know. Um, but Jacob was a twin, so it's very possible she had twins. But it, unless, let's say she, she didn't have twins, this means that she was pregnant 63 out of 84 months. Because uh, seven years equal 84 months. <laughs> and three other women had a total of five sons during those same seven years. And, again, this means that the first 11 sons of Jacob and the one daughter of Jacob, who's mentioned, were all born within seven years of each other's age, which is interesting because you don't usually think of that. You know, when you think of the older sons throwing little Joseph into the pit, you think of him being so much younger. But they're all pretty close in age those first 11. Benjamin is the one who's, you know, considerably younger, but the others are all right. Can you imagine 11 sons and one daughter, 12 children within seven years? 
Now, that's possible if you have four wives. <laughs> now, Leah's first conception resulted in a son who she named, what? Reuben. Only once did Jacob take part in the naming of one of his sons, and it was when he changed the name that Rachel had given for Benjamin. But he didn't do that till after she died, right? He changed it from son of my sorrow to son of my right hand. But uh, this is something to notice then with regard to the fatherly skills and the responsibilities of Jacob. He did not begin very well here as a father, did he? Because he left the naming of his sons completely up to the women. Now that's not a good sign. Now, as we look at the names of Leah's first four sons, we're going to consider, first of all, the Hebrew meaning of their names. And secondly, we're going to look at her personal comment. Now, this is on that flip side of your sheet there. We're going to look at her comment that she made after the birth of each of those sons. What does Reuben mean? It's on your sheet. It means, behold, a son. In Hebrew, the name sounds much like the words, the Lord has seen my affliction. Leah made a play on words with Reuben's name because she was not only declaring to Jacob, you know, look, I have given you a son, but she was also acknowledging that it was the Lord who had seen her pain and her affliction and had thereby blessed her with a son. Throughout the Old Testament days, and of course even in the New Testament traditional societies, such as ours, I would say, well, at least among us in this room, motherhood was viewed as the crowning joy of a woman's life. And all of us who are mothers, we would agree with that. Leah knew that Reuben was a blessing from the Lord. And it's interesting to notice her emphasis on the words, the Lord. Look at verse 32, look again at verse 33, look again at verse 35. She spoke of the Lord and she used the name Jehovah or Yahweh. That's the name of God which stresses his personal covenant relationship with man through salvation, through redemption. That's his special salvation name, you know. So Leah seemingly knew the salvation of God. And she's seen here, in these verses, she is seen as a spiritual woman. Because the names of her children tell us that she did the right thing in her pain. She did the right thing in her affliction. She didn't go and complain to Jacob, which is what we're going to see Rachel did in her affliction. She complained to Jacob. Leah didn't do that. Um, she didn't envy Rachel and speak badly about Rachel, which is what Leah did. What did she do? What did Leah do? She simply took her problem, she took her pain, she took her hurt to the right source. She took that to the Lord. Now, because Jacob, at 84 years of age, would probably be anxious to have sons, and because he would also know that the messianic line would continue through one of his sons, Leah hoped that he would love her because of the birth of her first son and that he would thereby, you know, then spend more time with her. 
he may have spent that initial wedding week with her, which he know we know he did because he fulfilled that wedding week with her, and that's probably when she got pregnant with Reuben. But since also receiving Rachel at the end of that wedding week, Jacob had probably spent very little time after that with Leah. So the birth of Reuben was Leah's hope that her husband would love her. We see that in uh, verse 32. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. Now, we know he did love her, but compared to his love for Rachel, it was almost like hatred. That's how it felt with, with Rachel, with Leah. Now, apparently, because she had given him a son, Jacob did spend additional time with her again because we know she gave birth to three more sons. However, from the names that she gave to her other sons, it would seem that Jacob primarily went to Leah because she was fertile and not because he, you know, he loved her with the deep kind of love that she really desired from him. At the birth of her second son, Leah said, because the Lord hath heard that I was hated, he hath therefore given me this son also. So once more we see Leah was giving credit where credit was due. She knew it was Jehovah who had given her a second son. The first time um, at the birth of Reuben, she had declared, notice that the Lord had seen her affliction. Now with the birth of Simeon, whose name means hearing or one who hears, she acknowledged that the Lord had heard her in her affliction. Now what does this mean? If the Lord heard her, what does that mean? It means that she had been praying to the Lord. And the Lord had heard her prayer. And, and she also now has another play on words with the name Simeon. Because in Hebrew, Simeon also sounds like the word for unloved. So there's a play on words there. Well, if nothing else had worked, at least the birth of two sons had Jacob staying in physical contact with Leah because she conceived a third time. And her declaration at the birth of her third son, Levi, whose name means attached or joined, her uh, declaration was, Now this time will my husband be joined unto me because I have borne him three sons. That's in verse 34. She was still, you see, holding out hope that her husband would, would um, become attached to her in love. If not for anything else at least for the fact that she had given three sons to him. It must have, you know, really been difficult for Leah to keep giving herself physically to a man who was, for all practical purposes, basically using her as a baby machine. You know, that, that would be very difficult. He wasn't really sharing himself with her in other ways, you know, asking about her and caring about her in personal, intimate ways, which would make her feel cherished. Now, next to Judah, who is the fourth son, Levi, there is no more privileged son born to Jacob than, than Levi, because the descendants of the third son, Levi, were given the honored position of representing the other tribes of Israel before the Lord. They became, the descendants of Levi became the priests of Israel who were privileged to offer sacrifices to the Lord on behalf of the people and to give their, you know, full time in ministering before the Lord. So Levi was a very, very important 
son became a very important tribe of Israel. Then Leah's fourth son, she named Judah, which means, everybody, praise. With the birth of Judah, we find great spiritual growth in Leah. There's no mention, you notice, no mention of her desire for her husband's love in the, at the birth of this son. She simply now turned her heart toward God and praised him, praised the Lord. She had t- taken her focus off of her problem, and now she put her focus where? On the Lord. It's very significant. Although Leah herself would not have known this, yet it's very significant that it was from Judah that the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, would come, the fourth son of of Leah. And that, indeed, is a cause for praise, right? I mean, there is no other greater cause for man to praise the Lord, God, other than, you know, the birth, the coming into the world of his son. And he came through the, the line of Judah. Leah had found an outlet for her need for love. And where was that outlet? It was in the Lord. She realized that she did not have to have a loving husband to make her feel joyful. Her joy and her praise were in the God of her salvation. God had not necessarily changed Leah's situation, had he? But what had he changed? He had changed Leah. He had changed her heart. He gave her the grace that she needed to live in a less than perfect situation. And guess what? He can do and he will do exactly the same thing for any of us who, like Leah, call upon him and ask him for his help. Nobody has a perfect situation in life. Nobody. We all have blessings balanced with burdens and burdens balanced with blessings. But if we're going to ever find a cause for praise, it isn't going to be in people. It isn't going to be in circumstances, is it? That can only bring temporary happiness. Happiness is based on happenings and you can have a life like a roller coaster if that's the way you're going to live. You know, whether things are going well, you'll be happy. If they're not, you're going to be sad. But if you're, you put your focus and, uh, your heart on the Lord, then you can be like this on a high level and always have the joy in your heart, the peace that passes all understanding, that inner joy that the world cannot understand, that only those of us who know the Lord understand. We can praise his holy name no matter what our circumstances. Even at death, we can praise his name, can't we? Because we know we'll soon be beholding his wonderful face. The Lord said, then thou shalt call, and the Lord shall answer. Thou shalt cry, and he shall say, here I am. So in your sorrows, don't forget ever to call on the Lord, because he's always there, waiting and willing and ready to answer. So we find how God had compensated lonely, neglected Leah by giving her four sons, and how two of those sons became the heads of the most important tribes in Israel, the tribe of Levi, from whom came the Levitical priesthood, and the tribe of Judah, from whom came the King of kings and Lord of lords. Was Leah blessed? 
Yes, absolutely. Well, four sons in rapid succession from Leah, probably one every year, you know, for the first four years of her marriage to Jacob, did not set very well with who do you think? (laughs) Her younger sister, Rachel. Jacob may have been, possibly was, spending more and more time over at Leah's tent not only ensuring that he had many sons, (laughs) but perhaps playing with those little boys, you know, as they were growing up. Can you imagine, you know, four, three, two, one, (laughs) right in a row. So uh, he might have been over there playing with them, watching them grow, spending more and more time at Leah's tent. Each wife had her own tent, by the way. Rachel would have definitely noticed um, also all that was occurring within her sister. You know, she wouldn't be able to help but notice how Leah glowed with that special radiance of motherhood. And especially after Judah, how Leah seemed so much at peace with her situation. Rachel also saw, of course, her own continued barrenness. She was producing no children at all. And what did it cause her to do? It caused her to envy her sister. And it caused her to grow angry at her husband. It also caused her to turn to a worldly solution to her problem rather than to the Lord, as Leah had done. So let's see uh, the situation when Rachel saw. And for this, we're going to look at... um, She saw a prolific sister, she saw a painful situation, she saw a popular solution, and she saw a personal success, in quotations, because the success was only in her own eyes. It wasn't a true success. So let's begin by looking at what she saw, a prolific sister. And again, we're just going to look at the very first part of verse 1 of chapter 30. It says, And when Rachel saw that she bare Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister. Okay, it's sad here to find that the very first time we read anything specific about Rachel, you know, other than a a description of her appearance, the very first time we read anything specific about her, it's not very favorable. We find that she envied her sister because Leah had given birth to four sons and she had not produced any children at all. Rachel, just like Sarah, Abraham's wife, and also like uh, Rebecca, Isaac's wife, was barren. You know, we see a progress, I mean, a progression here, don't we? Sarah, then Rebecca, and now Rachel, all three of them barren. Now, we do know, of course, that Rachel eventually gave birth. Uh, She gave birth to Joseph sometime, as I already said earlier, near the end of her seventh year of marriage to Jacob. Whereas, how old was Sarah before she ever had a child? She waited 90 years to have a child. And we know that Rebecca, Isaac's wife, Rebecca was married for 20 years before she uh, had her sons, you know, her twin sons, Esau and Jacob. So compared to those two women, Rachel hadn't waited very long at all. At this point, she's only waited about four years. 
and uh, she's already having a problem. Unlike her older sister, we do not find that Rachel, however, took her problem of infertility to the right source. She did not go to the Lord in prayer about it. Instead, she allowed the ugly sin of envy to take root in her heart. And it was an envy of all things against her not as loved, not as beautiful older sister. You know, you think about it, what business did Rachel have in being envious of Leah? Strong, hard-working, one day to be very wealthy, Jacob had agreed to work 14 years with nasty Laban, not for Leah, but really for who? For Rachel. Uh, both, both sets of his seven years had really been for Rachel. Rachel was the one who made men's heads turn, not tender-eyed Leah. Um, And perhaps even after their, well, during the first seven years, probably, and even after their initial marriages to Jacob, probably, perhaps, I can't be dogmatic, but Rachel may have flaunted Jacob's love for her before her older sister. And, And she probably made Leah's situation even more painful. Yet here we find Rachel became envious of Leah. And perhaps after Leah's fourth son, Rachel, you know, the the younger daughter, put her foot down and demanded that her husband go no more into Leah's tent. And perhaps this is why it told us at the end of verse 35 of chapter 29 that Leah left bearing. This is very possible. In fact, it wasn't until Rachel offered Leah one night with Jacob uh, as a trade for some mandrakes that Leah's oldest son had found that Leah conceived again. So what does this kind of tell us? It, it tells us that Rachel put, did, sounds like she put her foot down and said, you're not going into Leah's tent anymore until I have children. You know, you're going to stay with me because, um, you know, Leah was, she, she traded the mandrakes so she could have just one night with Jacob. And that sounds like maybe why she stopped conceiving. And also, if you look over at verse 15 of chapter 30, um, when Rachel made that bargain, Leah was angry. And she said, is it a small matter that thou hast taken my husband? So this is what it kind of sounds like. The highest privilege and the highest honor bestowed upon a woman back in those days was that of bearing children. We know we've talked about this in the past. And the pain of barrenness was a real, definitely a real trial for a woman because she was often thought to be disfavored by the gods or by God himself. And Jacob, Jacob will see in the next verse, in verse 2, understood that children were indeed a gift from God. And this might even have had something to do with uh, Rachel's envy. Because by the time of the birth of Judah, Jacob may have been spending more and more time with Leah, recognizing that God was blessing Leah and that God was disfavoring Rachel. And uh, because that was the common perception in that day. And um, this might have had something to do with her envy as well. But either way, whatever her envy was all about, it stirs up trouble. Envy always stirs up trouble. It not only stirred up trouble for Rachel with her sister, 
but it also caused trouble with her husband. You know, nothing can cause tension in a marriage or rip it apart as quickly and as easily as envy and jealousy. Proverbs 14.30 says, A sound heart is the life of the flesh, but envy is the rottenness of the bones. When it comes right down to it, if you think about it, envy is really a problem with God. Envy involves being upset about the goodness of another person. So it's a criticism of the wisdom of God. You know, if you're jealous about something somebody else has, that means that you're kind of um, angry with God for the goodness he has bestowed upon that other person. Envy is actually, or jealousy, is the opposite of contentment because instead of focusing on what one doesn't have, um, it focus, I mean, on focusing on what you do have, you focus on what you don't have. Envy caused Rachel to forget her blessings and to think only of her burdens, her barrenness. She was focused just on that, and she couldn't even think of all the reasons she had to be joyful and happy and praise the Lord. So let's see what Envy did also with uh, her relationship with her husband, with Jacob. And we're going to move on to a painful situation. And for this, let's look at verse the end of verse 1 and also verse 2. Um, after she envied her sister, it says, And she said unto Jacob, Give me children, or else I die. And Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in God's stead, who hath withheld from thee the fruit of the womb? Prior to the... Um, to the first verses of chapter 30 here that we've been looking at, we had practically no indication of really what kind of a person Rachel was. You know, we had a description of her, but we really didn't have much insight into her person. Now, however, we find not only uh, about her ugly envy of Leah, but we read about her ugly accusation, which is spewed out, at her husband. I tried to make her look mad in that picture. I think I only succeeded in making her look... No, she looks kind of mad, doesn't she? <laughs> uh, it's sad that the first recorded words in the Bible that we have from Rachel are words which were spoken in anger and in foolishness and in jealousy. Also in error because they're wrong. She said to Jacob, these are Rachel's first recorded words, give me children or else I die. And you know she didn't say that very nice. She had allowed herself to get so frustrated and jealous over her barren womb that she took it out naturally. (laughs) What do you take things out on? The one who is closest to you. But um, He was absolutely the wrong one to talk about, to talk to about having a child. Like her sister, Rachel should have taken her troubles to the Lord. He's the one who opens and closes wombs. Jacob obviously did not have a physical problem in having children, right? In producing children. He'd already proven that with Leah. So the problem was with Rachel and it was God's doing. Not only did Rachel wrongly accuse Jacob, but by her foolish words, 
or else I die, she really spoke a very dangerous ultimatum. She demonstrated, you know, great immaturity here, almost like a child throwing a tantrum. What she should have done was take her troubles to the Lord and put her trust in him and not in man. Rachel had lessons that she needed to learn, and the Lord was trying to teach her through her burden, through her inability to have children. It was going to take her a while to learn those lessons. Um, However, she would eventually learn them. But for this time in her life, she wrongly blamed her husband. Um, We're going to find that she would try some of the world's methods before she would ever turn to the Lord. She was going to try, um, when when her man failed her, these all start with M's, all right? When her man failed her, she would try her maids, her maid. Then she would try mandrakes. And then, when all those failed, she would finally turn to her master. The pain of being childless was so intensely felt by Rachel, and even more because of the fact that, you know, her sister was being so prolific, that she felt if she could not have children, it would just be better to lay down and die. Now, of course, if you nailed her to the wall on that, (laughs) I am sure that uh, she would probably not have actually chosen death if she did remain childless. But you know how women are. In the midst of her frustration and her envy and her anger, those were her words. What's interesting to realize is, however, that it was in having a child that Rachel did, what? Die. When she gave birth to Benjamin, she did die. So I guess the lesson there is it's not a light thing to show distrust and impatience with the providence of God, as Rachel did in her foolish ultimatum with Jacob. Well, again, it's uh, sad to find that the very first recorded conversation which we have between Jacob and Rachel, now remember, this is supposedly that loving couple. He worked seven long years to finally get her, and then he had to work seven more years because of getting her sister. But totally, he really worked 14 years for her. And we know how much he loved, Jacob loved Rachel. We don't really know how much she loved him, but um, it's really sad to find that their very first recorded conversation is the one that we find in these verses. It was not a kind or a loving or a godly conversation at all. And this just goes to show us, can Christians have problems? (laughs) Oh, yes. Jacob's response to Rachel's demand may not have demonstrated, excuse me, may have demonstrated his understanding of God. Because he understood that, you know, God was definitely the one who gave the fruit of the womb. But his response to Rachel did not demonstrate much of an understanding on his part of a jealous, frustrated woman. He might have understood God, but he sure did not understand women. You know, it's like, uh, don't listen to my words. 
Listen to what I'm saying. (laughs) And that's what she was doing here. In verse 2, Jacob lashed back at Rachel in anger. And he said, am I in God's stead? You know, God is the one who withheld the fruit of the womb from you. Being blamed for Rachel's barrenness had really angered Jacob. That made him mad. It was totally foolish. And you know how men are. How they're so practical and logical. And this was just stupid. It was foolish. (laughs) Frank is just like this, you know. Very logical, very practical. And you know how, well, maybe I'm not, maybe you guys are very practical and logical. But I go sometimes just by my emotions. (laughs) Um, But anyway, he he, he thought this was really a dumb thing for her to say. Because he had proven, of course he had proven, that the problem was not with him. Because um, he already had four sons. However, he should have realized that Rachel really down in her heart and mind, she knew that, didn't she? Of course she knew that truth just as well as he did. He knew, she knew the problem wasn't with him. But she was just taking out her emotions and her frustrations on him. As women tend to do. Now, even though Rachel's complaint was really against God, and that was definitely wrong, of course, yet as her husband, Jacob should have lovingly corrected her instead of responding in anger. He should have done what his own father had done during the long 20 years that his mother, Rebecca, had remained barren. He should have, and we read about this in chapter 25, verse 21, He should have entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren. That's what Isaac did with Rebekah. He prayed on behalf of the Lord. Jacob should have taken Rachel by the hand and gone to the family altar if he had bothered to build build one, which apparently I guess he didn't. But he should have taken her by the hand lovingly and... um, got down on their knees and besought the Lord on her behalf. And then he should have encouraged her with the accounts of his own grandmother, Sarah, and the account of his mother, Rebecca, by telling Rachel that God opens the womb when he's ready to do so. And that, you know, she just needed to be patient course he had a problem with patience himself didn't he but um she should have been patient and just waited on the lord after all she'd only been barren somewhere around four years so just wait rachel i am sure the lord is going to open your womb in time we just need to keep praying and asking him jacob should have tried to teach rachel about the importance of waiting on god and doing things god's way There was a more godly way, definitely, that Jacob could have handled the tension in his home. But, sad thing is, what? He didn't do it. He lashed right back at Rachel. And although his response was correct, in that God is the one responsible for both giving and withholding the fruit of the womb, yet he could have taken a more, you know, a more spiritual leadership role in this situation. The problem really seems to be that Jacob himself still needed to learn a lot more about God, right? And about waiting on God. And this becomes evident 
in the way that he conceded to his wife's solution to her barrenness. Instead of waiting on the Lord for him to give her a child, he went along with her popular solution and uh, took her handmaid to have children. So let's look at a popular solution, verses 3 and 4. It says, and she said, now she's talking to Jacob here. Behold my maid Bilhah, go in unto her, and she shall bear upon my knees that I may also have children by her. And she gave him Bilhah, her handmaid, to wife, and Jacob went in unto her. Instead of standing up for what was right and refusing to sin with a slave girl, who was given absolutely no choice in the matter. Jacob, we see, gave in to his wife's solution to bear a child through Bilhah. Jacob, now Jacob, remember who he is, the grandson of Abraham. He knew the mess that his grandfather had gotten into because of having done the very same thing with an Egyptian handmaid named Hagar. But like so many of us, he didn't learn from the mistakes of others, did he? He certainly didn't. Once again, we find, therefore, weakness in Jacob. To appease his wife, he gave in to an accepted worldly solution for her barrenness instead of simply praying to God and trusting God on behalf of Rachel. Jacob had lacked backbone when it came to standing up to Laban and refusing to take Rachel as a second wife. And now he lacked backbone in standing up to Rachel and refusing to take a third quote-unquote wife. Really, she was a concubine. He had allowed himself to be drawn into polygamy, and now he allowed himself to be drawn into concubinage, or how, whatever you call that. <laughs> and just because those practices were both accepted and legal in his culture, that did not make them right before God. Legalizing sin never makes it right in the sight of Almighty God. And all God's people said, Amen. That's true. Unfortunately, what we further learn about Rachel from this scene is not favorable at all. She, just like her father, was more set on solving her problem with her own devices than waiting on God. She was also, like Laban, her father, inconsiderate of others. In this case, she was inconsiderate of her handmaid, Bilhah, who was given no choice in the matter about laying with uh, Jacob. She was to be, Bilhah was to be used as a baby machine. And she was then to have her child taken from her and adopted by Rachel, which is what the expression to give birth over my knees means. It's a, it's a way of saying that the child was to be adopted. She was to uh, put the child on her knees, you know, and take, take the child as her own. So if, if Jacob would not play God, then Rachel would. But the sad thing is that Jacob went along with her plan, and two sons, Dan and Naphtali, were the result. Rachel took the result. She took those two sons as her own personal success in her struggle not only with God, but in her struggle to compete with her sister. So let's look at what she thought was a personal success, verses 5 to 8. 
verses 5 to 8. And Bilhah conceived and bare Jacob a son. And Rachel said, God hath judged me or vindicated me and hath also heard my voice and hath given me a son. Therefore she called, therefore called she his name Dan. And Bilhah, Rachel's maid, conceived again and bare Jacob a second son. And Rachel said, with great wrestlings, or wrestlings with God, have I wrestled with my sister, and I have prevailed. And she called his name Naphtali. Uh, Okay, that's where I stop. All right, unlike the situation with Sarah and Hagar, Rachel didn't grow bitter with Bilhah after she had a son. You know, Rachel didn't reject the firstborn son or the secondborn son of uh, Bilhah. She was delighted by the birth of the new baby, the first one and the second one, and she accepted them as her own. Like Leah, now we find that she alone named these two sons. Bilhah was given no choice in the names for her own sons, and we find that Jacob Again, didn't take any father responsibility in naming the sons. Rachel named them. And so we find that uh, Rachel named this fifth son of Jacob, first son of Bilhah. She named him Dan, which means in Hebrew, judged or vindicated. And in her explanation for the name, She said, God hath judged me, or God hath vindicated me, and hath also heard my voice and hath given me a son. What she was saying here was that God had now judged her to be worthy of children. He had vindicated her by hearing her prayer and giving her a child through her slave girl. The fact of the matter is, however, that this was not true. Scripture does not tell us that God heard Rachel, answered Rachel's prayers until verse 22. This was not God's answer to her prayers to have children. Success, you see, is not necessarily the mark of God's approval. And it definitely is not the mark of God's approval when immoral means have been used to bring about that success. Rachel had sinned, and Jacob had sinned. And no matter how you look at it, two wrongs do not make a right. The only thing Rachel did that was right in all of this situation here was that she did recognize God as the giver of life. She did, therefore, at least understand, you know, that the fruit of the womb is God's doing. She demonstrated belief in God, right? She did use God's name. She demonstrated belief in God. But we find that she did not show the level of trust in him that her sister had shown. And this is shown to us uh, by the fact that Rachel used the name Elohim for God. And that stresses God as the source of life, you know, the source of creation. But Leah, remember, had used the personal covenant name of God. Um, Yahweh or Jehovah, which stresses his redemption and his salvation. So it looks like Leah knew God as Yahweh, whereas Rachel just knew of God, at least at this point in time. 
Rachel was apparently so pleased with the success of her strategy to use her handmaid to have children that she sent Jacob to Bilhah a second time, and a second son was born. And that sixth son of Jacob, she named what? Naphtali, which means struggling or wrestling. And by way of her explanation for that name, she said, with great wrestlings, or in the Hebrew it might also mean the wrestlings of God, have I wrestled with my sister and I have prevailed. Here, Rachel was saying that she had succeeded in wrestlings with God and with Leah and she had prevailed. She had prevailed over her sister. In her flesh, Rachel was in a great contest with Leah over having children. She simply could not just be satisfied in merely having Jacob's love, you know, as the favorite wife, and simply trusting God to open her womb in his time, if that was his will. She, Rachel, had to have everything. She couldn't just be happy, you know, with Jacob, and she couldn't be happy for her sister that at least... Her sister had children. Even though she wasn't loved that much by her husband, at least she had uh, children. Um, And she couldn't be content in helping Leah raise those children. I mean, after all, they were her nephews. That would have been fun. She could have helped Leah with the boys. She, She couldn't be happy with all that. She had to compete with her sister, and she had to maintain her reputation before others. She was the kind of woman who was not content unless she excelled at everything. She wanted the glory and she wanted the reputation. She thought that with Naphtali's birth that she had prevailed over her sister because she felt now that she would not lose Jacob to her sister because now, you know, through her handmaid, even though they weren't her blood sons, through her handmaid, she now also had sons. But we find that Jacob never really considered those Rachel's sons. You know, she talked about adopting them, but when you go over, I think it's in chapter 33 or something like that, when they're finally going back to meet Esau, he separated the sons by their mothers, and he put the sons with the handmaids. And so he never really thought of them as Rachel's boys at all. Now now we come to the conclusion and also the saddest thing of all. I'd like to leave Leah where she was on a spiritual high, but she backslides. So let's see what Leah saw. And under this section, uh, we're going to look at a conception cessation. That's, you know, she stopped bearing children. We'll look at that and then we'll um, finish out with a competitive solution. Let's begin by looking at verse uh, 9a. First part of nine. It says, when Leah saw that she had left bearing. We'll stop right there. What's sad to find is that Rachel's scheme to have children through her handmaid and her bragging about having prevailed over her sister, her older sister, along with the fact that for whatever reason, Leah had quit bearing children. I figured it out. It couldn't have been very long. (laughs) She maybe didn't get pregnant for a couple months, but it couldn't have been very long. But anyway, all these things together, work together to produce a negative response from Leah to all of this. She had risen to the spiritual height of praising God for Judah, her fourth son. But after that period of inconception, 
Just like Rachel, she succumbed to turning to the world's solution for more children, sinking to the carnal level of her sister Rachel. Leah took her handmaid Zilpah and she gave her to Jacob. So let's look at a competitive solution, verses 9b to 13. When Leah saw that she had left bearing, she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to uh, gave her Jacob to wife. And Zilpah, Leah's maid, bare Jacob a son. And Leah said, A troop cometh. And she called his name Gad. And Zilpah, Leah's maid, bare Jacob a second son. And Leah said, Happy am I, for the daughters will call me blessed. And she called his name Asher. The worst part in this struggle with Leah and Rachel is that Jacob was always ready to comply with them in their worldly little schemes here. He really should have refused. Maybe he was enjoying this a little bit too much. I don't know. But he was a terrible compromiser. He might have thought that by complying with his sister wives, he would help maintain the peace. But did he? No, not by a long shot. He only made things worse. He made them get even more complicated. Well, we find that Leah named Zilpah's first son Gad, which means um, good fortune. Can you imagine naming your son Gad? You could always go around saying, good Gad. (laughs) But Gad means um, good fortune or troop. Okay. Now, she was obviously very happy that such good fortune had come her way by having another boy through her handmaid. Her words, uh, a troop cometh, notice in verse 11, she says, a troop cometh. They were perhaps spoken as a comeback to her sister. You know, her sister had declared through the birth of Naphtali that she had prevailed over Leah in their ongoing struggle. And now perhaps Leah was telling Rachel that uh, her end of the battle was not yet over. She had a whole troop of children yet coming her way. Now, if in fact Rachel had, had been instrumental in keeping Jacob from Leah's bed, and if this was the reason for why Leah had ceased producing children, then we really can better understand Leah's reason for stooping to use her handmaid for more children to battle with Rachel. You know, it's like, if you won't let Jacob sleep with me, I'm going to give him Zilpah. So the whole thing is wrong any way you look at it, and it's very immature. But this is life, right? This is reality. (laughs) Let's look at ourselves. Well, when Zilpah again conceived and had a second son, Leah named him Asher. Asher means happy. Reminded me of the little seven dwarfs. Wasn't there one of the dwarfs named Happy? (laughs) Wasn't there? Or am I? Yeah, okay. Her comment at the time of Asher's birth was, Happy am I, for the daughters will call me blessed. As Rachel... Had, had been seemingly more concerned about her reputation, you know, before others, that, that she had been vindicated about her shameful barrenness and that she had prevailed against her sister. You know, she was really concerned about her reputation in front of everybody. Now it seems like Leah also is uh, interested in how the sons of Zilpah increased her reputation before 
her women friends, you know. Uh, She who had been so seemingly unmarriageable that her father had to trick a man into marrying her. And she who had suffered greatly in that marriage by feeling unloved was at least now held in high esteem by the other women in her community because she had six sons. She was the mother of six sons. And this esteem made her very happy, at least temporarily. However, her success... And Rachel's success did not raise the right kind of esteem, right? They should have been interested in earning esteem in God's eyes rather than in man's or woman's eyes. Now, in naming her two sons, I'm almost through here, by naming her two sons um, by way of Zilpah, we notice that Leah gave no recognition to God this time. Remember the the first four sons that came from her own womb? She was always talking about the Lord. Here, in, the, in these two sons by Zilpah, there's no recognition of God. After all, how can God be acknowledged for that which was done in the flesh and in definite contradiction to his morals? So perhaps in the fact that Leah did not drag God's name into the situation with the birth of Zilpah's sons, at least Leah recognized that this was contrary to God's way of doing things. I'm trying to give her the benefit of the doubt here. But she did not want to take a chance at losing her husband completely to her sister now that her sister had a greater hold on Jacob with two adopted sons. And Leah was no longer, at least temporarily, having any children of her own. But whatever her reason, we do have to admit that Leah backslid here. She used a carnal means to continue to have children. She came down from her spiritual plateau at the birth of Judah to seemingly compete with her sister for Jacob's love and for uh, Jacob's children. She had seemingly forgotten that her true happiness, her true praise, and her true joy lay in the Lord. Well, think about this. It was into this bitterly divided and dysfunctional family. I mean, if you think you have a dysfunctional family, look at this one. It was into this family that the forefathers of the 12 tribes of Israel were born. They were fathered by a man who had been a deceiver and a liar, who then became a bigamist, and then became a, an adulteress who showed uh, more, who showed passive concern about fathering and about being a godly husband. And uh, they were mothered by four different women with all kinds of rivalries and jealousies which went on among them. I mean, that's that was their parents, the twelve. Um, children who fathered the 12 tribes of Israel. So is it any wonder um, that the 12 patriarchs of Israel grew up with a number of problems themselves? Wait till we get to reading about them. Boy, they had all kinds of problems, but it's no wonder. Yet, it was through them that God continued the promises given to Abraham. 
It was through them that the nation of Israel was born. And that was a very, very big step forward in God's overall redemption plan for the world. Because uh, it was through them, of course, through the nation of Israel, that we not only got the written word of God, but we received the living word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of this simply goes to demonstrate to us that it is divine grace and not human merit which gives mankind the uh, the hope, the sure hope of salvation, right? Aren't you thankful for God's divine grace? Because we sure don't merit it. <laughs>